0: If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of February 19, 2023. The podcast that solved Fermat's next-to-last theorem. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's derangulate the news of the bogus. So, once again, Biden shows how much he hates the self-employed. In his State of the Union speech, which has to be one of the cringiest ones ever, not only for his ridiculous policies, but the Democrats giving each and every one of them a standing ovation, he endorsed the PRO Act, or Protecting the Right to Organize Act. Apparently, the right to organize means the requirement to organize the way we want you to. It would end right-to-work laws in 27 states, which don't actually prevent unionization, just prevents it when less than 30% of workers actually want to. And one of the provisions is something Democrats have wanted for years, removing the ability of workers to be independent contractors and forcing them into employment contracts where, among other things, they'd be forced to join a labor union. All in the name of protecting them. Protection they didn't ask for and don't want. They claim it's to prevent misclassification, but there are a few problems with that mostly regarding who gets to determine whether a worker is misclassified. According to Biden, that answer is not the worker. And even if a worker is properly classified under the vague and complex rules, it would still have a chilling effect on small businesses who can't afford extensive legal counsel, discouraging them from working with contractors altogether. It's also bad for the self-employed, as if it wasn't bad enough that we had to report any individual contract over $600 last year. This will be an even more serious blow to gig workers, whether they're part-time, looking for a side hustle, or need flexible hours, none of which the labor movement has been in favor of. This comes as the Department of Labor finalizes a new rule that narrows the kind of worker that can be an independent contractor, while also showing they have no understanding of contractors. As much of a boon, Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash have been to people looking for extra work, the so-called gig economy, which Democrats also hate, amounts to only 8.6% of independent contractors. Unlike the picture they dishonestly try to paint, most independent contractors are listed as... Professional, scientific, and technical services on tax documents. Other services, and health care, are second and third. Over a dozen surveys, including from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, show that a majority of independent contractors prefer their current situation over employment. One big reason is children. Parents need flexible hours when a child depends on them, say, to pick them up from school if they're sick. And while these rich, privileged, elitist snobs cry about job stability, most independent contractors prefer job flexibility. In a recent study published by the Journal of Political Economy, UberX drivers would want almost twice as much pay to accept an inflexible schedule that would accompany an employment arrangement. Makes sense considering they'd also have greater personal expenses such as childcare. That's why self-employment rates are higher for women who have young children and self-employed females choose jobs with greater flexibility in location, hours, and schedule. Women consistently indicate that they prefer independent contract work precisely because of these flexible arrangements. So add sexist to the list as well. If you really want to help them, give them what they are asking for, like portable benefits that aren't tied to an employer. I gave one example of how to do just that a decade ago and How to Fix Healthcare Without Spending a Dime. But since when have they cared for what workers actually want? Sorry folks, but they don't care about workers. They care about big corporate unions who lobby far more and give far more money than oil companies, big tech, and other major donors. Without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. So generally with this podcast, I tend to quote people because playing the audio from something like a copyrighted news program can get me in legal hot water even if it's absolutely 100% fair use. Unless it's something like a public hearing, then I'll play the audio like I did when the New Jersey Assembly had a hearing on new gun control policies and the Maricopa County hearing where politicians ignored and lied about the direct testimony of poll workers. Because no one would make a copyright complaint against something like that, right? Uh, yeah. Turns out, they can. A YouTuber by the name of Mandu got a copyright strike because he used the footage of a publicly streamed Louisiana parole board hearing, adding his own commentary over the top of it. A hundred percent fair use of something that should never be copyrightable to begin with. Oh, by the way, did I say he got a copyright strike? My mistake. He got 52 copyright strikes. Apparently, the last draw from him was when he uploaded commentary on the parole hearing of Thomas Frank Sisko, the only person ever convicted of the 1997 K.K.'s corner murders. He pleaded guilty to manslaughter in 2010 and was sentenced to 90 years. Including time served before the plea, he served 24 and a half years. Apparently, at the parole hearing, former DA Rick Bryant got all triggered, not just because Cisco was going to be released on parole, but because he didn't get the death penalty. The parole board said they had to issue the takedown orders because they have to, quote, protect the victims. Which makes no sense whatsoever, because it's all public information, and they streamed out their images and identity to the entire internet! At any rate... Copyright is not about protecting identities or whatever. It's about protecting so-called intellectual property. There's none of that here. Not only that, but under Louisiana's open meeting law, members of the public have the right to record public meetings. Cockroaches don't like the light, and they'll do anything they can, including bogus copyright takedowns, to try and keep their activities out of the public eye but to do so after they themselves put it in the public eye to begin with? That's a whole new level. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? And an update on other IP bogosity, in particular Yacht.com's legal battle with the RIAA over its stream-ripping service. The RIAA had used DMCA notices to take down Yacht's Google search results, which negatively impacted revenues, so they sued, saying that they hadn't broken any laws and asked the court to declare that their service doesn't violate the anti-circumvention provision of the DMCA. As we covered, the District Court completely forgot how Burden of Proof works, and ruled that Yout hadn't shown that they didn't violate YouTube's protection measures, and, as such, it could be breaking the law. So they appealed. In their appeal, they argue that there's no DRM for them to be circumventing, quote, Neither YouTube nor the defendants employ any form of digital rights management or encryption, the inclusion of which would eliminate the ability of the Yout software to allow Yout's users to make copies of the works. Indeed, not only is there a lack of protection against such copying, the process can be accomplished by anyone with a web browser without the need for Yout's services. As we covered, the lower court had disagreed with this because a user would have to manually increment a number to get the next piece, and that totes makes it encryption somehow. Quote, there is no evidence that YouTube intended this to be a technological measure designed to limit access or copying at all. And, if the technology was not designed or intended to limit or access in copying, the defendants cannot claim retroactively that such a technological measure exists by happenstance. Also, YouTube's videos are publicly available and not behind a paywall. Quote, Indeed, it is clear from YouTube's Terms of Service which the district court took judicial notice of, that, by providing their videos to YouTube, the defendants explicitly agreed that YouTube's visitors were permitted access to the works. While that was going on, another stream ripper, YouTube DL, was temporarily taken off of GitHub with a DMCA takedown notice. GitHub submitted an amicus brief to the Court of Appeals supporting Yount's request for a reversal. They wrote, Developers routinely design software that allows users to experience content in new and value-enhancing ways without express permission from a copyright owner. By interpreting the DMCA in a way that conflates measures controlling access to a work with measures controlling use of a work that is already publicly accessible, the district court's ruling threatens to imperil the software developers who create those tools, ensnaring legitimate software within the DMCA's reach and chilling technological innovation. And they said that the lower court's conclusion is premature, dangerous, and places other software types at risk. Quote, The district court's rationale thus imperils wide swaths of conduct that the software development community considers both acceptable and desirable. The court should not interpret the DMCA and its harsh criminal penalties in a way that threatens those beneficial activities. They give several examples of software that will be threatened by such an interpretation, including Dark Reader, Google Translate, Open Dyslexic, Screen Readers, Ad Blockers, Media Players such as VLC, and archiving services such as the Internet Archive. The EFF filed an Amicus brief of their own. They specifically point to perfectly legal uses for stream rippers, quote, Video creators, educators, journalists, and human rights organizations all depend on the ability to make copies of user-uploaded videos. Copyright law ordinarily protects and promotes the lawful activities of these groups through the Fair Use Doctrine and other exceptions to copyright. But overbroad application of Section 1201 effectively strips that protection away, making these lawful activities legally fraught and practically difficult in the digital age. Over the past several years, the RIAA have sought to block, censor, and demonetize providers of these tools because a subset of their users infringe copyright. The RIAA asserts that stream rippers necessarily circumvent access controls on video sharing sites like YouTube in violation of Section 1201, a position adopted by the district court in this case. That position is wrong." The district court adopted an extremely broad construction of a technological measure that effectively controls access to a work that is not supported by statutory text or precedent. It's really stupid when you think about it. Simply by playing the YouTube video, you are accessing the work. In Universal v. Corley, the court said that these are, quote, "...technologies designed to prevent access to a work." BUT SUCH A TECHNOLOGY WOULD GET IN THE WAY OF WHAT YOUTUBE IS ALL ABOUT! QUOTE, YouTube arrives at a viewer's device with no encryption or scrambling. No login, password, key, or other secret knowledge is required to gain access. When a user requests a YouTube video using a web browser, YouTube servers send a web page which contains a JavaScript program. The program is not secret. Any member of the public can read it simply by right-clicking on a web page, and any common web browser can run it. While Defendant Appel IWA described this program as a rolling cipher, the program does not limit any user's access to videos or their ability to save a copy. In fact, anyone who understands streaming can tell you what that number's all about. YouTube doesn't make you download the video all at once before playing it. That would just take too long. Instead, it loads up just the first few pieces, based on how fast it's calculated you can download the video. While you're playing the video, it downloads the next pieces. By the time you've gotten to the end of those first pieces, you should have already downloaded the next few, and can keep playing without interruption. It can also do clever things like, if it notices the pieces aren't downloading as quickly, drop to a lower resolution to keep the video playing on time. And as the EFF pointed out, quote, YouTube does not identify the player program as an access control. The district court cited to language in YouTube's terms of service, asserting that users are not allowed to circumvent features that limit the use of the service or content. But those terms don't state or imply that any feature of the service, including the player program, is intended to prevent downloading. And that's unlike its separate paid service. Tellingly, YouTube does use encryption and a password-controlled login to limit access to subscribers of its separate pay-TV service, YouTube TV. That similar access controls are not present on YouTube's core user-uploaded video platform is another indication that the company did not intend to impose an access control on user-uploaded videos. They conclude, quote, Amateur video creators rely on the ability to download video to use excerpts in reviews or commentaries, or as part of new creative endeavors. Journalists and human rights monitoring organizations need to be able to save copies of eyewitness videos documenting notable events, conflicts, and malfeasance. Even copyright holders and their licensees rely on tools like gout.com to download copies of their own or licensed works. By contrast... Expanding the scope of Section 1201 to potentially cover any digital copy of a work that a rights holder can later claim was subject to some inadvertent or ambiguous technical impediment would dramatically narrow those opportunities. What is worse... By applying the trafficking bans of 1201A2 and B to a much broader range of commonly used technologies, such an expansion makes these lawful and important uses more difficult and labor intensive at best or impossible at worst by denying access to tools like Gout.com that facilitate and automate access to online video. The arguments are crystal clear. Hopefully they're clear enough that even an appellate court can understand them. Do you have children, or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling, or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? And now it's time to urbanize this week's Biggest Bogan Emitter. And this week it goes to mediocre software developer Dan O'Dowd for yet more fraudulent video lying about the safety of the beta version of Tesla's full self-driving, which aired during the Super Bowl. He also posted it in a Twitter post where he said, quote, Watch the Dawn Project's Super Bowl ad demonstrate critical safety defects in Tesla's full self-driving. He mentions his previous video, which was proven fraudulent by several Tesla YouTubers, who then had their videos taken down by O'Dowd using a false DMCA claim. Quote, Six months ago, we reported FSD would run down a child. Tesla hasn't even fixed that. outright Lie. There was nothing to fix. Tesla's FSD easily stops for children and other pedestrians. Quote, To focus their attention, NHTSA.gov must turn off FSD until Tesla fixes all safety defects. Twitter's community context posted corrections with links, saying, Dan O'Dowd owns a competing software company riding self-driving software. Dan's previous attempt to show FSD will run down a child was debunked. Another user performed a test, and it worked as expected. Tesla's FSD is over 55 million miles driven, without any reported injuries. The new video shows a Tesla hitting a dummy of a child, a stroller, and other supposed safety problems. What they all lacked was cockpit data showing FSD was active. He shows a Tesla running down a dummy child in a school crosswalk, but there's no indication the car was operated by anything other than a human being. Tesla YouTubers show over and over again that FSD Beta does no such thing. He then claims the Tesla swerves into oncoming traffic. This is classic priming, when someone tells you what you're supposed to see before you see it. We covered this long ago with crap like electronic voice phenomena, where they always tell you what the mysterious voice is going to say before it says it. Without priming, it's just an indistinguishable mess, but priming lets you think it's more clear than it is. As per O'Dowd's normal, the video is 720p instead of the 4K you'd expect from any Super Bowl ad, but the interior footage is even lower res, with tons of compression artifacts and none of the text even remotely readable. The blue line showing the path the car has mapped out, which Tesla people call the Noodle, shows no swerving. That's where FSD would go if it were active, but the driving icon at the top appears to be gray, not blue indicating that FSD isn't active. The only driving function active is cruise control. Going around a curve to the right, the car approaches a BMW in the opposing lane, which then encroaches over the double yellow line, as so many drivers annoyingly do. bats to all of them. So the driver panics a bit and jerks the wheel. As it does so, the driving icon disappears, meaning that cruise control is deactivated. And even if I'm wrong and the driving icon is blue, and the crappy resolution was just masking the color, that would mean that FSD WAS ON, but turned OFF as soon as he jerked the wheel. This is by design. The human driver can take over in an instant. Oh, and by the way, he cut off the bottom of the screen so we couldn't see any warning messages. The driver did the swerving, and he swerved AWAY from oncoming traffic. But with the priming and the fast editing, it's deliberately set up to mislead you into thinking otherwise. The stroller hit is also just an external shot with no cockpit data shown. Next, the Tesla passes a stopped school bus. There is a warning, but we don't see what it is. Again, the resolution is too crappy to read it, and the driving icon looks gray to me since it doesn't match the blue of the noodle. So FSD isn't even active. But either way, the driver is in control at all times, so they should have hit the brakes if the car didn't, so they just admitted to breaking the law!" He then shows the car going through Do Not Enter signs. The icon is gray, meaning you just have cruise control on, not full self-driving, just like with the next clip where it drives on the wrong side of the road. FSD is not active. And like all the clips, at least the ones that weren't cut off at the bottom, a warning message appears in the lower left, exactly where it would appear if the user overrode what the car was going to do. The message is way too low resolution to read, but the message appears to have the yellow triangle of the warning that tells you you're moving out of your lane. O'Dowd claimed the message was, supercharging unavailable. Hugo Souza pointed out that you see that message when someone's messed around with the software. O'Dowd replied, You know nothing. You can't even read the message on the screen. Of course not, because you posted it at such a crappy resolution. Let's see the 4K video, Dan! Of the criticisms, he made the age-old cry of the woo. Shell! Quote, Nearly all of the deniers below have a huge conflict of interest. They are Tesla shareholders, desperately trying to cover up grotesque safety defects in Tesla full self driving just to line their own pockets. But as the community context said, quote, Tweet Author presents unverified claims as factual. Tweet Author does not and cannot possess knowledge regarding respondents' Tesla ownership. Dan O'Dowd is founder and CEO of Greenhill Software. Greenhill Software produces competing automotive projects. One of the main critics was Holmar's catalog, who replied, Dan O'Dowd is a pathological liar who is organizing a smear campaign against Tesla because he is the CEO of Green Hill Software and they are getting killed by Tesla. Our real-world tests prove FSD Beta does respond to children, helping to prevent crashes and save their lives. O'Dowd claims that his software, quote, "...never fails and can't be hacked." We know exactly what to make of those claims, don't we? Remember Steve Ballmer bombing up and down the stage, having missed his calling as a professional wrestler, screeching that Windows XP was the most secure operating system ever? Green Hill software is being used in the mind-blowingly expensive boondoggle the F-35. Holmar's catalog showed a video from Doug Dunbar of the F-35 messing up a simple automatic landing, something routinely done in commercial jets, so there's no excuse. The pilot has to eject, and from the testimony of several users, ejecting that close to the ground is a disastrous situation. To them and many other critics, he copy-pasted the same reply, quote, "'You have no knowledge of our role in the F-35. If you did, I would sue your ass off for violating the NDA. Everything you are saying is pure fabrication.' There have been no public failures of our software in the F-35. Funny thing, he didn't actually deny it. As for the Teslas... This does not match both the testimony of Tesla drivers and the direct evidence shown in videos by Tesla YouTubers. They do not swerve into oncoming lanes. They do not hit children. They're very cautious about pedestrians that even thinks might be getting into the road, and if anything, the complaints of Tesla owners is that it's too cautious and can make it difficult to get through college campuses and other high pedestrian areas. When, of course, full self-driving is actually active, which you can easily tell because the icon turns blue. In any of these cases, O'Dowd could release the full-resolution footage and the footage from all of the Tesla cams and the computer data as well. Once again, he steadfastly refuses to do so. I guess he has to do something, though, because a few more failures from his software that never fails and can't be hacked could mean his company's in trouble. Unlike Tesla, despite this video playing during the Super Bowl and getting millions of views on social media, Tesla's stocks didn't even seem to notice. As of this podcast prep, Tesla's stock is well over 200 after beginning at 189.87 at Monday morning's opening. Kinda makes you wonder what we could find out about O'Dowd if he couldn't hide behind an NDA and threaten his employees for breaking it. So all that makes Dan O'Dowd this week's Biggest Bogani Emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot dot TV. And now let's renotify this week's Idiot Password managers are vital. And nowadays, pretty much any of them will work. Once LastPass blazed the way and showed the rest how it's done, they're all fairly equal in features and security. Although, you might want to reconsider if your choice is KeePass, and I do not say that lightly. It isn't so much that there's a security issue, it's that they deny it's an issue and call it a feature. The vulnerability has been publicly verified and listed as CVE-2023-24055. In a default Windows installation, anyone who has write access to the settings file can obtain all of the clear text passwords in the user's KeyPass vault. KeyPass, like most Windows applications, keeps its configuration file in the user's AppData folder. Unlike the Program Files directory, That is not protected by being inaccessible to anyone but administrators. So any user of that same system, or any malware that ends up running on it, doesn't even have to go through some other kind of vulnerability in the OS, or some other way of breaking through global configuration settings, they just make one quick modification to the XML file, and the entire vault is exported in plain text. What's interesting is that KeyPass goes out of its way to prevent things like keyloggers from being used, even by users with sysadmin powers. But this method is incredibly easy, even for someone with no administrative access whatsoever. I mean, it's huge. But instead of saying, gee, sorry about that, we'll fix it, like an honest developer would, lead developer Dominic Reichel doubled down, levied insults, blamed the victim, and refused to fix the flaw wouldn't even so much as add a confirmation prompt before exporting the entire plain text vault. Quote, In both cases, having right access to the KeePass configuration file typically implies that an attacker can actually perform much more powerful attacks than modifying the configuration file. These attacks can only be prevented by keeping the environment secure, by using an antivirus software, a firewall, not opening unknown email attachments, etc. KeyPass cannot magically run securely in an insecure environment. Oh, bull! There are tons of ways you could prevent this, or at least mitigate it. And it doesn't imply that the attacker can perform much more powerful attacks. All it implies is that he can use the computer. Keypass could, on installation or upgrade, create an enforced configuration file which would stop these and other triggers from being added in by malicious actors. I mean, you could use this bogus reasoning to argue against at-rest encryption, because the whole point is to protect your files against other people who might be able to access them. Because that's all that's required here. No hacking, no phishing, no privilege escalation, nothing but base-level access. In something as important as this, security should be paramount. To be this dismissive and insulting in the face of a major vulnerability is beyond irresponsible. So all of that makes key pass this week's Idiot Idiot Idiot. Well, that wraps up this What a disaster edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.pagacity.tv for several ways to support, and discord.pagacity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar, and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from P.J. O'Rourke. There is only one basic human right. The right to do as you damn well please. And with it comes the only basic human duty. The duty to take the consequences. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, on commercial No Derivatives, 4.0 International License. Bogosity.